Uh, so good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you to Jocelyn and the SDPA for having me today uh, and through this meeting. Last year was the first year I was allowed or able to participate in the meeting, uh, invited to participate in the meeting, and the SDPA puts on a fantastic meeting. So I am so excited to get to be here again with all of you uh, to, to be a part of this meeting and to learn uh, with you because I learned a lot last year too. So I'm excited about that again. So this morning I'm going to start off talking about rheumatologic dermatology. We're going to talk about some of these complicated conditions um, and what it is that we should be able to do in our first or second interactions with the patients, as well as knowing which of these patients are the ones that we need to enlist some help in treating from other specialists. We're going to start off, though. These are, there's no right answer to my first two questions. There's no wrong answer. So, but I want to start off with a couple of questions here. Um, so grab your clickers. First question is, I diagnose and or manage patients with lupus, dermatomyositis, scleroderma, morphia, or vasculitis. All right, great. So almost 90% of the people in this room are taking care of patients who have these conditions. So that means that this is a relevant talk. That's good. And my second question then is, which of the following makes me most nervous about rheumatologic skin disease? Missing the diagnosis, prescribing the right treatments, knowing when and to whom to refer, all of this or none of it? Okay, so all of the above was, was the majority answer chosen. Um, my hope is that in 45 minutes, that answer will switch to none of the above. Well, maybe not none of the above. I still get nervous treating these patients too. So um, I think that uh, what we're gonna cover today though is how to make the diagnosis, how to initiate that correct treatment, and, and when and, and to whom to refer. Um, so, Today we're going to define what we mean when we say rheumatologic skin disease. We're going to discuss the key skin features and diagnostic workup and first-line therapies of lupus, dermatomyositis, systemic sclerosis, which is scleroderma, <clears throat> morphia, and vasculitis. We're going to review skin findings that can be signs of rheumatologic disease, and we're going to talk about when to refer. So what do we mean when we're talking about rheumatic or rheumatologic skin disease? These are autoimmune diseases that affect connective tissues of the body. Connective tissues are really anything that's not muscle or nerve. Uh, it's, it's the tissues that bind things together. It's the dermis. It's the adipose. It's blood. It's bone. So these are autoimmune diseases that affect these tissues. And most of these autoimmune diseases are characterized by very prominent skin involvement. The ones we're going to focus on, again, lupus, dermatomyositis, uh, systemic sclerosis, and morphia, and vasculitis. When patients come in with a skin finding, whatever it is, one of their, they, they usually have two big concerns. One is how it looks, how others are perceiving them. It's the aesthetics. But the other, the other big concerns patients come to us with is, could what I'm seeing on my skin be a sign that something is wrong with my overall health? And with these connective tissue diseases, these rheumatologic diseases, often the skin is that first clue to something that's going on with the overall health systemically. There are a few skin findings that when a patient presents with these, you should start to think rheumatologic skin disease in your differential. These include photosensitivity, so when patients come in and they are getting a rash that worsens when they're out in the sun, it could be a sign of rheumatologic skin disease or some other systemic illness. Raynaud's phenomenon, so when the fingers are turning colors in the cold. Purpura, ecchymoses that aren't due to trauma, 
um, blue digits from infarction and ulcers. All of these are, are potential signs of rheumatologic or other systemic disease. Looking at capillaries in the nail folds, really important, we'll talk about that more, but dilated nail fold capillary loops. You can look at that proximal nail fold right behind the cuticle and see blood vessels. That is a sign typically of rheumatologic disease and joint swelling. So these are just some general findings when a patient comes in and starts talking about these or you start seeing them that should get you thinking, okay, this person could have a rheumatologic skin disease uh, or a systemic illness. So just some important things to, to know to start your differential. Because skin findings are, like these are often the way these, skin, these systemic diseases present, or the first thing that the patient notices because they're so visible, derms play a key role in making the diagnosis of rheumatologic disease. The diagnosis really relies on clinical findings of these diseases. These are diseases we know that are one of the reasons that they are so challenging and so sort of anxiety provoking is there's not a single test that you can order to confirm that, yes, this patient has lupus. It's really a constellation of, of systemic clinical findings that allows us to make a diagnosis. Um, and so dermatologists play a, a huge role in those kinds of, of conditions. And the skin manifestations are often important parts of the diagnostic criteria of these diseases. Um, a lot of times, too, the skin findings are, are either subtle or they're very similar to uh, findings that we have in other conditions. And so we, as dermatologists, are the ones that are best able to really pick out these subtleties, distinguish between different similar skin rashes uh, to help make this diagnosis. And then, as derms, we're the ones who are best able to understand um, the treatments for skin disease. So we're the ones who are gonna be able to take care of this aspect of the patient's systemic disease, even though we may not be treating every aspect of the disease. Okay, next question. Which of the following is a patient with cutaneous lupus? Fantastic, that is the correct answer, C. This is a patient who has uh, cutaneous lupus, discoid lupus on the cheeks. Uh, so let's start by talking about cutaneous lupus. Lupus, I think, is, can be super confusing. Um, when I was training in dermatology initially, I think one of the things that made it most confusing to me was every time a patient was presented or a slide was presented and we were asked to give a differential, it seemed like lupus was in every differential. And I, and I just couldn't understand how could things that looked so incredibly different and things that I hadn't really thought about as being lupus still have lupus in their differential. Um, and so I think once I kind of was able to understand that a little better, it made lupus a lot less scary. So cutaneous lupus is classified broadly into two kind of categories, lupus-specific skin disease and lupus-nonspecific skin disease. Lupus-nonspecific skin disease is really this array, this heterogeneous group of skin findings or dermatoses that may occur either in association with systemic lupus or at an increased frequency among patients who have lupus. And it's a really long list. And this is where I think a lot of my confusion came. You have this list of a whole lot of dermatoses and skin findings that really don't have a lot in common. Uh, but as it turns out, the one thing that this list has in common is that we see it a little more, these conditions more frequently, these findings more fre frequently in people who have lupus. So that's why they'd show a picture of somebody with urticaria and put lupus on the differential, even though it doesn't seem to look like what we think of as lupus. So it's a nonspecific finding. Urticaria can occur more commonly in patients with lupus, but it's not specific to lupus. Whereas lupus-specific skin disease is a skin manifestation 
for which a biopsy will show interface dermatitis. So it's going to have a specific histologic pattern on biopsy. You're going to see this interface dermatitis where you have lymphocytes right at the dermal epidermal junction. You have some death of the basal layer keratinocytes. Uh, you have some thickening of your basement membrane zone. So when you see something that you think may be lupus and you biopsy it and you get this interface histology, it tells you, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. So lupus-specific skin disease has specific histology on biopsy. That kind of shows you that thickened basement membrane zone, uh, which is that pink kind of area between your dermis and your epidermis. So when you think you're looking at something that may be lupus, biopsy it. Because you want to see that specific histologic pattern to let you know you're going down the right track, or no, you got to start thinking about a different category for your differential. So lupus-specific skin disease, in addition to having that typical histology, is then divided into three major subtypes. Acute cutaneous lupus, subacute cutaneous lupus, and chronic cutaneous lupus. The chronic cutaneous lupus is usually referred to as discoid lupus. So that's what the, the woman in that picture uh, in the quiz had was discoid lupus. Acute cutaneous lupus is the classic butterfly rash. So this is either patchy or macular erythema in sun-exposed areas, usually that the face. It spares the nasolabial folds in areas where the sun is not hitting the skin as, as easily as in other areas. Um, and it's important to recognize because it's almost always associated with systemic involvement, systemic lupus. There are a lot of patients that we see that have only skin lupus, but patients who have this finding ha usually have systemic disease. This is a finding that I see probably less, this is a subtype that I see less than any other type of cutaneous lupus because when these patients have this butterfly rash, they're usually also having a lot of serious systemic symptoms, and they're presenting to their primary care physicians or their rheumatologists um, before they get in to see a dermatologist. So we don't see this one as much, but when we do, we need to know systemic lupus is, is systemic manifestations are likely. In contrast, subacute cutaneous lupus is something we will see a, a lot of. These patients are going to come to us first um, because they have this very visible skin rash, these sort of annular or psoriasiform looking scaly patches and plaques. Um, they too tend to be most prominent on the sun-exposed skin, so the V of the neck, the arms, upper back, um, face. This does not result in scarring, although as the, the rash resolves, it can be, there can be some post-inflammatory pigmentary change that takes a while to resolve. Um, but this is one of the types that, that comes in our doors in dermatology. Um, and then the other type we see in dermatology as the first, the first line is discoid lupus, this chronic cutaneous lupus. This type of lupus will cause scarring of the skin that is permanent. Um, it is characterized by erythematous, red, pink, scaly patches and plaques um, that result in alopecia in areas where, like the scalp or hair-bearing areas. Um, you'll see follicular plugging, what look like little open comedones. I'll show you a better picture of that in just a moment. And it causes a lot of pigmentary change, dispigmentation. Um, so classically, you get this depigmentation centrally with hyperpigmentation around the edge. So here on this patient, erythema can be a little bit more challenging to detect in a patient with darker skin. But when you see erythema and scale, it means that that lesion of discoid lupus is active means that the inflammation is ongoing and it's, it's progressive. 
Um, so that's, that's what you want to look for to know if this lesion is, is currently causing problems. Eventually, you'll just get that atrophy and pigmentary change without scale and erythema. That lesion is burned out and nothing you're going to do to it is going to have any impact on it. So our goal is to treat before we have that permanent scarring that, as you saw from the prior picture, can be incredibly disfiguring. The other place to look when you see a patient that you think might have discoid lupus, but you're not sure, maybe they only have one little spot and, and it's early, check the conchal bowls. Um, for some reason, discoid lupus likes to occur in the conchal bowls. So, um, and that's not a sun-exposed area, so it's not a place intuitively that we think to look, but it is a place very commonly affected by discoid lupus. Recognizing these different subtypes of lupus is important because it allows us to predict what the likelihood of a patient having systemic lupus involvement is. So patients, as I said, with acute cutaneous lupus, the butterfly rash, all, virtually all of them will have systemic lupus, internal organ complications of some type. The group with subacute cutaneous lupus less likely to, although still a significant portion of these patients will, um, and we'll talk about why 20 to 50 percent, that's, that's a pretty wide range, so we'll talk about that in just a moment, but certainly um, a significant portion of patients with subacute cutaneous lupus will uh, have systemic disease, and then the patients with discoid lupus, those are the ones that are least likely to have systemic involvement, particularly if their discoid lupus is limited to the head and neck. Um, and that's what we see in the majority of discoid lupus patients. But there are some, as I showed you, who have it all over, these, these discoid lesions in a more generalized fashion. Below, and general, by generalized, we just mean anything other than head and neck. And they have a significant likelihood of systemic lupus as well. And when I say systemic lupus involvement or internal organ involvement, what I mean is that they meet the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology criteria uh, for systemic lupus. These criteria were initially developed in 1982, uh, and they are going through some changes uh, currently, but they haven't changed a whole lot yet. So um, unfortunately, and we'll, I'll tell you why, but if you look, there are 11 criteria, and a patient must meet four criteria to be diagnosed with systemic lupus. Interestingly, four of them are cutaneous. So the malar rash, the butterfly rash, a discoid rash, photosensitivity, and oral ulcers. So a patient can really have purely mucocutaneous disease but be called a patient with systemic lupus. That's why I think we see these wide ranges like 20 to 50% of patients with subacute cutaneous lupus have systemic lupus. They may meet these criteria. They may not in all instances have really severe systemic internal organ involvement. Um, so the criteria are being updated hopefully to reflect that to weigh skin findings maybe a little less heavily while skin is very important and clearly in the diagnosis of lupus. Um, it is maybe not, um, it's maybe overrepresented by this criteria. Other manifestations include arthritis, serositis, fluid collections around the heart or lung, so pericarditis, pleuritis, um, renal disease, neurologic disease, hematologic disease, immunologic disorders, and the ANA. When we see a patient that we are diagnosing with lupus, again, I think that a lot of that anxiety comes from how do I know if this patient has really serious internal involved, organ involvement? It's what they're worried about, it's what we're worried about. So how do we want to work this up? We don't have to immediately pitch this to another specialist, but we want to think about those 11 criteria and sit down with the patient and start with a review of systems because that's going to get to several of those criteria. We can ask about arthritis, we can look for joint swelling, um, so asking about that can get to one of those criteria for systemic disease. Serositis, is the patient having chest pain, palpitation, shortness of breath, indicative of pleural or pericardial effusions. Renal disease, do they have peripheral edema? Have they been having swelling? Neurologically, do they have seizures or have they had them or histories of, history of psychosis? 
And you also want to ask these patients when you're doing a review of systems about constitutional symptoms, because as we know, patients with systemic lupus tend to have a lot of fatigue, um, malaise, they may have fever, unexplained fevers, um, and you want to ask about a history of thrombotic events. Patients with systemic lupus have a higher likelihood of blood clots and miscarriages. So you can get a lot of information with just a few questions in that first interaction to let you know whether you need to go on to, to refer this patient because of concerns for systemic disease. You can also order some labs. So you can look to assess their renal function by ordering a BUN and creatinine and a urinalysis. A urinalysis is, is as important as the blood testing because we can pick up red blood cells and protein in the urine sometimes before we'll see changes in renal function on uh, BUN and creatinine. Hematologic workup, we want to we look at a CBC with differential to see if they have any of those cytopenias that can indicate hematologic lupus involvement. For an immunologic disorder, that's all those autoantibodies. We'll talk more about those uh, in the next lecture a little later this morning, too. But these are the tests that I would recommend ordering. So your complement, C3 and C4, a double-stranded DNA, anti-Smith antibody, SSA, SSB, and antiphospholipid antibody panel. So this is a good initial screening lab test for the immunologic disorders of systemic lupus. And then, of course, that ANA. That is a standalone criteria. When you order it, you want to make sure that you are getting a quantitative titer. A lot of the tests that uh, first pop up on our screens when we go to order it are ELISA tests, where we just get a positive or a negative result rather than a 1 to 40, 1 to 80, 1 to 320. Um, the titer test is much more sensitive. And so patients will uh, not infrequently have a negative screening ELISA, but on this titer test, which is called an IFA test, they will have actually a positive titer. Um, so you want to make sure you're ordering the test that gives you the titer. <clears throat> when you're following these patients in your clinic over time for their skin manifestations, even if everything really seemed to turn out in the clear for systemic involvement, patients may develop systemic disease many years later than their skin involvement begins, ten, a decade later, 15 years later. So you want to do some ongoing follow-up with labs. You want to make sure they're seeing a family doctor or a primary care doctor of some type or, or provider who can do a yearly history and physical exam. And you want to repeat that review of systems and those labs annually. The labs you repeat every year, though, don't need to include the entire immunologic workup. Once again, really just looking at their blood count, their kidneys, um, and then any lab findings targeted based on positives that you've picked up in your review of systems or your exam. <clears throat> An important thing that I wanted to comment on with, with cutaneous lupus, you've recognized it, you've evaluated this patient. One of the things you don't want to miss, though, is that Patients can have lupus triggered by a drug, and for those patients, if you eliminate the drug, you have a chance of clearing their cutaneous lupus. Doesn't always happen. Sometimes this is the trigger that sets them off for having lupus for the, the duration. But uh, it, it does have the potential to stop if you stop a causative drug. So review their medication list. Um, Drug-induced lupus is a little more common in women uh, white females over the age of 50. The onset can be anywhere from very early after a medication has been started, within weeks to years, and the resolution can take a really long time after stopping the medication, um, but on average about six weeks if it's going to stop. Most of these patients will have positive SSA or Rho antibodies, and that antibody may persist for the rest of their lives, even after the, the skin involvement clears. It's a really long list of medications that can do this. And unfortunately, it's a list of really common medications. A lot of cardiovascular medications that patients are on, antihypertensives, um, medications we prescribe, terbinafen, Lamisil for onychomycosis, definitely one of the, the ones that we see triggering this. Um, 
PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, another class that pa many, many patients are on that can be a trigger. So just don't forget when you're seeing a patient with lupus to go back, look through that drug list, see if there's a trigger. Um, even patients who perhaps had lupus prior to being put on one of these drugs may find that their skin lupus worsens once they are started on these. So working with the patient's primary care provider to try to make changes when possible can be really helpful. Um, there's no other way to distinguish drug-induced lupus, though, uh, skin lupus, from idiopathic skin lupus. It looks the same under the microscope. It looks the same with lab testing. It looks the same clinically. So you have to go back and review the medication list. And you need to hit the books because that list keeps getting longer and longer and longer. So do a quick search um, to make sure that the meds they're on are not typical triggers of skin lupus. How do we manage these patients? We've, we've diagnosed them. Uh, we've worked them up to see if they have systemic involvement. So what are we gonna do to treat their skin? Here's where we're fortunate. The majority of patients with cutaneous lupus will improve with conservative therapies. You wanna stop those drugs that are known to trigger cutaneous lupus. You wanna to talk to them about photoprotection at every visit, repeat it like a broken record, like we do with pretty much all of the patients we see every day. And then we can do topical steroids and calcineurin inhibitors to treat the skin. And sorry, it's not popping up there, but anti-malarials, hydroxychloroquine. So with stopping drugs known to trigger it, sun protection, topical steroids, and one systemic medication, hydroxychloroquine, we can treat and control the skin manifestations of lupus in about two-thirds, 65% of patients, so the vast majority, without having to do big gun immunosuppressants. Photoprotection is something that we don't want to underestimate. Patients don't always recognize how sun-sensitive they are, and this is true of lupus and, and other photosensitive dermatoses, oftentimes there's a lag of up to three weeks between that sun exposure and the onset or worsening of the skin rash, so they don't always put it together. Um, UVA and UVB wavelengths are responsible, so they need to use broad spectrum sun protection. Um, I recommend that it be at least an SPF of 50, um, but that clothing and shade and, and eye protection, sun avoidance, of course, are always better sun protection than sunscreens are, which aren't the armors that we would like them to be. Um, and it's important just to revisit the, this at every visit. Unfortunately, this sun sensitivity is probably also the biggest factor contributing to poor quality of life for our patients with cutaneous lupus. So you can imagine, if you can't go out in the sun, you can't go to the family barbecues and the neighborhood parties and your kids' soccer games. Um, and, and so it's really, really hard to live with photosensitivity. So also having, recognizing that, talking to patients about how it's affecting them and, and, and having some empathy for that and trying to work with them to find ways to make sun protection work better for, for them in their lives. Topical therapy, corticosteroids. This is one of those times where you get to use clobetasol on the face. So typically we don't like to use these really high potent topical steroids on the face, but as you can imagine, the atrophy you can cause with clobetasol pales in comparison to the damage that active discoid lupus on the face is going to cause. And you need a really potent steroid to try and stop that inflammation. Um, so starting with something like clobetasol for these, these lesions, even on the face, and having a patient come back in two to four weeks, making sure they're improving, and then starting to reduce to lower potency topicals uh, is very appropriate. If they have just a few spots of discoid lupus, for example, on their skin, intralesional steroids can work really well. Um, on the face, I'll do five or even 10 milligrams per ml of intralesional triamcinolone, and that can often get these discoid lesions to resolve. And then the calcineurin inhibitors can be used too. Again, they would be used as a step down after a high potency steroid has been, has been effective. And then anti-malarial therapy. This is your first line oral treatment of cutaneous lupus. Typically we use hydroxychloroquine. 
It does have a maximum dose of 5.5 milligrams per kilogram per day. You don't want to exceed this dose because if you do, it increases their risk of retinal toxicity, which can cause permanent blindness. It's a slow medication to work. It takes two to three months to really become active. Uh, so you have to tell your patient that this is not gonna work right away. It's gonna take a while. We're gonna work with some topical modalities in the meantime, hoping to get this at a manageable level until this drug can kick in. And we're not gonna give up on it until we've given it at least three months before moving on to stronger medications. Again, the eye toxicity is the main thing we watch for with this drug. The patients need a baseline eye exam. And then starting at five years after they've been started on the medication, an annual eye exam annually. A lot of ophthalmologists still do an annual eye exam. They don't wait for that five-year mark to start doing annual eye exams. I let the ophthalmologist decide if that's what they want to do, but it's their American Academy of Ophthalmology guidelines that say you can wait five years as long as the patient doesn't have other risk factors for eye disease before doing that screening. Um, but I send them to the ophthalmologist after that three months have elapsed, and I know I'm gonna keep the patient on the medication have them get the baseline exam, and then let the ophthalmologist decide how frequently to follow them. So in addition to referring to ophthalmology, if they're on hydroxychloroquine, when else are we gonna refer these patients elsewhere? Well, if our review of systems or lab studies suggest they have systemic involvement, get them to a rheumatologist so that that person can help in managing their systemic manifestations. Or if this is one of those patients in that about 33% you know, who don't respond to the conservative therapies, a rheumatologist or a dermatologist who treats a lot of rheumatologic skin disease or is comfortable with prescribing the correct immunosuppressants would be the, the appropriate referral. Okay, everybody feeling better about treating lupus? Hopefully, recognizing it. Um, We'll move on. We're going to talk about dermatomyositis. You're going to see some overlaps here, so we'll go through some of this a little more quickly. But first, a question about dermatomyositis. Which of the following is true? Patients obviously see a dermatologist as their first provider when symptoms begin. Most patients complain of photosensitivity. Patients who have negative muscle enzyme tests don't have myositis. Children and adults are at the same risk of complications or dermatomyositis-specific autoantibody testing is usually positive. This is a tough one. <clears throat> so A is the correct choice. So patients often come to us as the first person they see when they develop dermatomyositis. And we'll talk about why the others are, uh, are not correct as we go through this. So dermatomyositis is an autoimmune disease. It's characterized, as the name implies, by rash, dermato, sun sensitivity, and muscle weakness, myositis. It's more common in women than in men. Um, it's still rare, though, uh, with an incidence of about nine cases per million. Uh, and about 20% of patients who have this won't have any muscle disease. We still call them dermatomyositis. We call them amyopathic dermatomyositis, um, but they only have the skin disease. So they're gonna come to us, they're not even gonna think about seeing a rheumatologist or their family provider because of weakness. Uh, about 50 to 80% will have a positive ANA test. Um, and then there are some antibodies that they may have, but they're much less common, uh, with only probably about 20 to 40% of patients having these positive, positive dermatomyositis-specific antibodies. So lots of patients will have dermatomyositis that won't have positive autoantibody testing. There's a bunch of very specific findings of dermatomyositis. It's one of these diseases that, that you can walk in the room in many cases and just see it and know it right off the bat. But it can be a little bit more subtle. Um, so we're gonna show some examples of these. The ones in yellow on this list, the heliotrope, the Gotrans papules and sign, a scalp, psoriasis-like rash, and those nail fold changes I alluded to earlier, they're in yellow because these are really helpful skin findings to distinguish dermatomyositis 
from lupus, which is probably one of the most common mimickers that patients are re referred to us for rule out lupus because they have a photosensitive rash and an ANA. So these findings can be really helpful. So the, these are patients with dermatomyositis. The heliotrope rash refers to this kind of purple scaly patch on the eyelids. It really likes to be on the side of the nasal bridge as well. Sometimes you don't see it so much on the eyelids, but you see it on the nasal bridge. So this is the heliotrope and it has this typical kind of purplish color, much easier to appreciate in white skin. These are Gotrin's papules, scaly, almost wart-like papules sometimes on the top of the knuckles, usually on the DIPs, but also sometimes on the MCPs and PIPs. The shawl sign is seeing kind of a similar purple scaly patch on the back where a shawl would cover. The elbows, areas over joints often have that same appearance. Sometimes you can even get some little papules like the Gotrin's papules over joints and other areas besides the fingers. And then these are the nail folds. You, the cuticles get thickened, they get ragged looking, and you see these little blood vessels that are dilated right there at the proximal nail fold. Really, dermatomyositis and scleroderma are the only things that will do this. So if you see these findings, um, you need to have a high index of suspicion. Patients may also, in addition, get a lot of edema of the central face. The scalp can look a lot like psoriasis or seborrheic dermatitis, but then she's got the heliotrope here. So you have to put some of these findings together. The Gotrin's papules I showed you already, but sometimes you just get erythema over the knuckles or extensor joint surfaces. We call that Gotrin's sign as opposed to Gotrin's papules. And again, those nail fold changes that can be really helpful. Look at the extensor surfaces of joints, not just the hands and elbows, but you can look at others' ankles, knees, lateral hips. Look at the uh, sun-exposed areas because that's often where you see these purple, scaly, poikilodermatous patches. So the shawl sign, the v-neck sign. Um, so when you recognize this, it's, it's super, it's very important to recognize this because dermatomyositis has some systemic manifestations that you need to know about. And you want to, pick, you want to look for because patients, about 20% of them, will have an occult malignancy associated with their onset of their dermatomyositis. This is just the adult patients. Kids with dermatomyositis are not at risk for malignancy. You don't have to worry about that in children. Um, it can be a malignancy of any organ. There is a specific antibody called TIF-1 that seems to be associated with a higher risk. Um, so if you get an antibody panel for dermatomyositis and they have that, you want to be a little more concerned. The risk of malignancy is highest in the three years before the onset of their dermatomyositis symptoms to the three years after. Once you pass that three-year mark, their risk of an associated malignancy is no higher than the risk of malignancy in an age-matched individual. So for the first three years, you need to really look hard for cancer in these patients. The other thing we worry about is interstitial lung disease. We see that in up to 20%. It seems that the patients that get cancer are one 20% group, lung disease a different group. They don't tend to be the same individuals. So we're saying that about 40% of patients can have a really serious systemic association, cancer or interstitial lung disease. And that interstitial lung disease can be progressive, it can be rapidly progressive, it can be fatal. And these antibodies are associated with a little higher risk, MDA5 and JO1. So how do we work up our dermatomyositis patients? We want to look for these things. So we want to do a review of systems in these patients too, really every organ system, because that malignancy can be any malignancy of any tissue of the body. We want to do some lab testing. So we want to see if they have muscle involvement. They may come in and complain or be clearly weak uh, on exam, but they may not complain of that or know it yet, and you can check for that or confirm that weakness with muscle enzyme testing. Um, again, the majority will have an ANA, 
And now you can order these myositis-specific antibody panels. They're available commercially. Many universities have them, but Quest and other commercial labs also have these dermatomyositis antibody panels that you can order. It's only about 30 to 40% of patients that will have one, but if they do, they're highly specific and you can, you can really be confident in your diagnosis. You want to look for interstitial lung disease with pulmonary function testing or a high-resolution chest CT. And you want to do malignancy screening. And when we say malignancy screening, we mean really aggressive malignancy screening for that first three years. We want to look for hematologic malignancy. So CBC, we're going to get a CMP, we're going to get a serum protein electrophoresis, looking for hematologic malignancies, lymphomas and myelomas. We get a CT scan of the chest, the abdomen, and the pelvis, and we do that every year for the first three years. Um, for women, mammography. For men, PSA, uh, pap smears for women, colonoscopy, and if they're not at an age appropriate for colonoscopy, fecal occult blood testing. Um, and we repeat this entire workup uh, every year for three years. Um, the other thing that is not on here that should be, a transvaginal pelvic ultrasound for females, because it is able to pick up ovarian cancer better than a pelvic CT is, and ovarian cancer is overrepresented among the malignancies seen in women with dermatomyositis. So we've worked them up for their systemic complications. How do we start to treat them? This looks really familiar. And it's because we start with the same things we start with in our lupus patients. Unfortunately, however, this is not as effective in dermatomyositis as it is in lupus. So the two-thirds of patients with lupus that clear with these measures don't, uh, we don't see that at all in dermatomyositis. Most of these patients do end up needing additional systemic treatments. So you are going to refer these patients if they have muscle involvement. You want to get a rheumatology colleague involved to help manage the muscle disease. That's based on whether their enzyme tests are positive or even if those tests are negative and they have symptoms, they may still have myositis and need some further workup just to confirm that that muscle weakness or symptom they have is truly related to the disease. If they have lung involvement, you get them to a pulmonologist. And you want to consider this an emergency. You want to get these patients seen right away because this is one of the manifestations that, that can be rapidly fatal within a few months of onset. And you're really always going to work with a primary care provider for assistance in that annual malignancy screening and their, their H&Ps each year. In many cases, you're going to need to make sure that this patient is being seen by somebody who treats a lot of dermatomyositis and knows which immunosuppressants to get them started on. Um, and then you can continue their management and work with that person. Um, but a lot of times, these patients need things stronger than just the, the more conservative therapies that work in lupus. Systemic sclerosis. Next question. Next disease. This is also known as scleroderma. Can it affect which, of, which organs does it possibly affect? The heart, the lung, the kidney, the GI tract, or all of these? All right, look, I can, I can walk away. You guys have it already. 98%, very good. I like the Austin Powers movie. I'm a bad parent. I just let my kids watch that recently. They thought it was really funny. Um, one of them, they're, they're teenagers, so. Um, so systemic sclerosis. Systemic sclerosis is classified into two groups, limited cutaneous and diffuse cutaneous. So when we're talking about them, we start by dividing patients. Limited cutaneous uh, systemic sclerosis, or scleroderma, tends to start at a, a slightly older age in life. So middle-aged to older women, often they've had a long history of Raynaud's, they have facial telangiectasis, they have those nail fold changes that are very similar to those in dermatomyositis. They get skin involvement, skin tightening, that's usually limited just to the hands and feet and maybe the face, like around the mouth, where their mouth, their oral uh, opening is lessened because of the sclerosis. This is what often was referred to as crest syndrome in the past. Now it's, it's really thought of more as limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, but they, these patients often have the crest manifestations, cutaneous calcinosis, Raynaud's, esophageal dysmotility, so there's our GI tract, 
sclerodactyly, tightening of the digits, and the telangiectasia. Um, and they may have positive autoantibodies, anti-centromere being the one that's most common in this group. Um, they'll often have an ANA. Um, and then there's a test called anti-SCL70, which fewer of them will have. So it's this anti-centromere or centromere pattern of the ANA that you will see in patients with limited disease. In contrast to diffuse cutaneous scler systemic sclerosis, which can begin a little bit earlier in life, and it starts with this sudden onset, usually, of dramatic swelling in the hands and feet um, that then leads progresses to that skin tightening, and then that progresses proximally to involve almost, can involve almost the entire skin surface and be associated with some dispigmentation like you see on the chest of this patient here. In addition to the skin sclerosis, they're also getting that sclerosis of internal organs. They have a much higher rate of this than the patients with the limited disease, and that sclerosis can affect the, the heart, the kidney, the GI tract, the lungs. Um, you guys already knew that, clearly. Um, these are the patients, though, that certainly have the, the bigger impact on, in their survival with a six-year survival rate of only 30%. Um, so these are patients that are, are really sick. Um, they may have the centromere antibody. They'll often have an ANA, um, and it's cut off there. But 40% of them will have this SCL70, or anti-topoisomerase antibody. So how do we work these people up? Again, we start with our review of systems, and we think about all of those organ systems that could be involved. We ask them about esophageal symptoms like GERD and swallowing problems. We ask about swelling in the hands and feet. We ask about pulmonary and cardiovascular symptoms, check their blood pressure. We get labs looking for the antibodies that I had mentioned, as well as for assessing their renal function, because the, the kidneys uh, disease may be asymptomatic initially. And we look for that interstitial lung disease uh, with, with PFTs. We look at their, for their heart disease with an echocardiogram and an EKG. And we get GI to do an endoscopy and look at their esophagus. So these patients are also going to start seeing a lot of specialists right away. You're going to be sending them, sending them out for a whole bunch of consults. How do we treat them? Well, we're, we're going to treat the skin part of this disease, one of the major manifestations being Raynaud's. And it's really important. Primary prevention is, is one of the most important parts of treating Raynaud's, making sure their hands and feet are warm, but not just their hands and feet, their core. They have to be warm all over in order for Raynaud's to be prevented. Um, if that is not enough to suffice, the first thing we'll put them on is a calcium channel blocker, like nifedipine or amlodipine. And you can also have them use topical nitroglycerin, the nitroglycerin paste that, that you would use in cardiology. Um, you can use the same thing on the sides of the digits where the blood vessels are to allow them to dilate uh, when they're going to be outdoors. So um, that's a to nice topical that, that we can recommend for them. As I said, we're going to refer many of these patients. Um, so we're going to refer for the skin part of things, though, um, for physical therapy and occupational therapy to keep them as mobile as possible. And we're going to refer in many instances to somebody who can do phototherapy in their office if, if you don't have it. Um, and really, it's the UVA1 or the, the PUVA therapy, the UV that gets really deep into the skin that's going to be helpful for the skin manifestations. So that's not really widely available. And you're going to refer these people for all of their systemic complications to the appropriate specialists as well. Okay. Which of these is not morphia? Great. That is an epidermal nevus. That is not morphia. But all the rest of these are. The most important thing I can tell you about morphia is, it, is that it is a skin-limited disease. It is not a sign of systemic sclerosis. It's not related to scleroderma, even though that's often used in the name. Patients will get online and immediately think that they have scleroderma or that they're going to get it. And you can tell them, no, this is only going to affect your skin. We have several subtypes, which I'll show you. Um, and they all kind of initially begin with these erythematous plaques that then slowly become more indurated. They can become atrophic and dispigmented. 
If you see erythema of the lesion at the margin or, or throughout, you know that it's still active and progressing and you need to do more to control it. So the pictures of generalized morphia are hard to, you don't, they're hard to photograph, but this is generalized skin tightening. It may feel a little bit uh, or look a little bit like scleroderma, but they don't start on the hands and feet and progress proximally, and they aren't preceded by these edema that systemic sclerosis is. The most common type is plaque morphia, where you get these kind of dull pink-brown plaques that become atrophic, often on the trunk. And then linear morphia frequently occurs on the forehead or on the extremities. When it's on the forehead, it's often called ankou de sab, which means the slash of the saber, because it looks like somebody hit them with a sword, I guess, down the middle of their forehead, Game of Thrones style. Um, but it can also occur on the extremities. You need to treat these forms more aggressively, particularly if, they, if it goes over a joint, because that can affect mobility. A biopsy can help you to diagnose morphia, so that's part of your initial workup. But you don't need to do a systemic evaluation because there is not internal organ association uh, involvement. You can treat plaque morphia or early morphia with topical steroids or intralesionals, but if it's generalized or more widespread linear morphia, they're going to need systemic therapies, often methotrexate. Because it can compromise mobility if it's over joints, we're going to get these people to physical and occupational therapists. If it affects the forehead near the eye, you want to think about sending them to neurology and ophthalmology because it can affect the eye or even the meninges. People can have migraines and seizures because sometimes that tightening is actually not skin limited. And patients with generalized morphia are going to need systemic therapies and phototherapy. We're going to race through vasculitis in the last, like, 30 seconds. Sorry, this is a lot to cover, um, but you've got all of this in your handouts, and I'm happy to talk more about any of this with you. We'll talk about it some in the next few talks, too. Vasculitis is a group of diseases characterized by inflammation of blood vessel walls, and we classify it based on the size of the vessel involved. I think you had a good talk yesterday for those at the uh, PEDS pre-course about vasculitis as well. The most common forms we see are small vessel vasculitis, um, leukocytoclastic vasculitis. It's characterized by palpable purpura. And then the medium vessel vasculitis, where it's affecting deeper, larger vessels, we get ulcers and nodules on the skin. These are our anca vasculitides. We don't usually treat the large vessel aortic involvement, for example. Palpable purpura, the hallmark of leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Ulcers and nodules typically indicate deeper, larger vessels are involved. And vasculitis can affect not just the skin, but you can have that blood vessel damage occurring in almost any internal organ as well. And in rare cases, it can be a sign of internal malignancy. And so you're going to biopsy to confirm that it's vasculitis, and you're going to figure out what size of the vessel is involved. You're going to do a review of systems and a good H&P to find out which of all these almost any organs might be compromised as well. You'll review the medication list. There are medications that can trigger vasculitis. Again, you need to kind of hit the books and see which those are. Illicit drugs as well, cocaine in particular, can trigger vasculitis. And you're going to do labs looking for the internal organ involvement that can occur, again, in almost any organ and refer based on the findings of those tests. I'm not going to go through the quiz, but it should be in your handout with all the answers. And if you have questions about it, please come back to me at any time throughout the meeting, and we'll go through it. Um, but I will move on and let you do your evaluation and then hand the mic over to the next speaker. Thank you.